Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God of all peace. And that you promise, Lord, that if we turn to you, if we cast our cares and anxieties upon you, that you will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Father, we confess that we are often tempted to make peace dependent upon the conditions we have set. That peace would be found in security from in some temporal, physical way. Whether it be security with our finances or security with our relationships, security in our place of housing or employment. But Father, I think of the glories of the peace that you provide to your people that is exhibited in your disciples as they are in prison singing praises to you. Father, that you provide a peace that is beyond the difficulties of this life, that we can face the loss of all things and count them as worthless because we find peace in the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father, today we ask that as we continue to consider the suffering that we face as pilgrims, that our hearts would be looking to the wonderful peace that you provide for us, the hope that's found as we entrust ourselves to you. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're looking at uh, the second, second part of our look at the suffering that pilgrims face here on earth. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. But again, I wanted to remind you, this has been a few weeks since we looked at this. I think what's helpful is to see how the psalmist calls us to find hope in Christ. We are called to taste and see that the Lord is good. That there is blessing given to the man who finds refuge in him. And so this is the very principle that Peter is pointing us to as we face our suffering here on earth. So look with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll read verses 12 through 19, but we're going to be focusing mainly on verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. For you are, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So just to quickly recap what we've already looked at and what we saw in verses 12 through 14, we saw, first of all, there is a nature given to the pilgrim suffering. We are to expect suffering. Jesus told us this. In this world, you will have tribulation. Um, he, he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And here it is, Peter, again, reiterating that reality. Don't be surprised. 
Don't be surprised as though something strange was happening to you. And then, of course, you know, we hear this in God's word. It's so explicit. And what, how do we act when we face suffering? I wasn't expecting this. Like our general sense is that we don't want to deal with this. We think that it's a strange thing. But Peter here is reminding us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we ought not to be surprised. This is normal for the Christian life. We're to be expecting it. And then we saw that the pilgrim's suffering is purposeful. Nothing happens in our lives. Nothing happens particularly in regards to our suffering that does not have a purpose before it. He says then in verse 13 that we are to rejoice. Why? Because we share in Christ's sufferings so that we can also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. There is joy that comes through this. And if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we're blessed. So our suffering produces an opportunity to revel in the glory of God and to recognize that we are blessed, which brings us to the second thing that we looked at, the product of the pilgrim's suffering. Suffering produces joy. Suffering produces blessing. Now these are, um, these are antithetical ideas. It seems paradoxical to us that suffering would be a means to blessing. But again, we look back at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the last beatitude. Blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. So we've seen that suffering produces joy, that we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering, that we can recognize there's blessing that comes to us as we endure the mocking and the persecution of the world for the sake of Christ. But then there's one final thing, and this is where we left off, I think, three weeks ago. One final thing that suffering produces in the lives of pilgrims, and that is it produces purity. Suffering produces purity. Our suffering produces purity. Look with me in verse 15 now. But let, how many of you suffer? None. None of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. What we see, first of all, is that the purity that suffering produces within us is that it focuses on our response to suffering. And what we must do is reject sin when we suffer. We're called to reject sin when we suffer. Now, the temptation is when we are in the midst of difficulty, when the fires of trials are hot in our lives, when we are suffering and and struggling in our lives, that it's easy for us to want to respond in a sinful way. And what Peter is calling us to recognize, what God is calling us to recognize, is that we ought not to act in a sinful way. Now, this is nothing new from what Peter has said in this book. In, we, if we just went back, sort of worked our way back up through the passage, you can see in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that we are to suffer for righteousness' sake. He says in, in uh, chapter 3, verses 12, uh, uh, 13 through 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is... I'm sorry, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Again, righteousness is the cause of our suffering, not sinful activity. In chapter 2, verse 16, he admonishes his hearers to live as free people, but not as people who use their freedom as an excuse or a cover-up for sin to allow them to engage in fleshly desires. In chapter chapter 2, verse 11, he says that we're to have honorable conduct among the Gentiles so that when they rebuke us, it's not going to be because we've done sinful actions. Now, all of this flows from what we see in chapter 2, 
verses 21 and 22. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed how much sin? No sin. Neither was deceit in his mouth. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter's call for us to reject sin is throughout this book. It's this theme that keeps coming up and keeps coming up and keeps coming up. Why? Because be honest, when you're facing the the fires of trials or the difficulties in life, that is when you are at your weakest and you are most tempted to act in a sinful way. It's, in one sense, easy to live for Christ when things are going well, right? Everything's going hunky-dory. You're not dealing with any problems. Your relationships are great. You're popular. You've got the money in the bank you need. Everything's going good. And so it's like, well, okay, it's easy. But when you lose some of that security, when friends turn against you, the pain and the hurt that comes upon you as a result of that can be monopolized by the devil to pull you away and to say, you know what, maybe you should just give up on this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you should turn away from it. But Peter calls us to reject sin. The persecution that believers to whom Peter was writing had various levels of severity. And I think this is also important to keep in mind. They would suffer societal harm. They would suffer economic difficulties. And then there, were phys- there was physical violence done on them, some even to the point of death. Now, the major amount of difficulty that they faced was societal harm. I think sometimes we have this concept that that the Christians always were only facing terrible martyrdom and they were always being fed the lions. Now, that certainly happened, but that actually wasn't the typical experience for a believer. They would face societal consequences. Particularly if you were a Jew and you were baptized in Jesus' name, that meant that you were no longer welcome at the synagogue. That's where your family was. That's where life was in the Jewish communities all around the Roman Empire. If you took a stand for Christ, you were, would realize that you couldn't pay homage to the trade guild gods that were in these different cities. And so you would now no longer be able to sell whatever you were selling at the market. You'd have to do it outside of the market. And there were, the people weren't there. So there was a clear response of societal rejection. We see this in Acts 17.32. This is Paul speaking of the resurrection of the dead. And when people heard of that, what did they do? Some mocked. But there were others who said, we will hear you again about this. So there was societal difficulties, mocking. And that happens today, does it not? The world around us, you turn on the the pundits, you turn on the late night comics. Do they have a good opinion of Christianity? No. And so society in general from a media standpoint is that way. But when you talk to friends, co-workers. You see their attitudes about the way you live your life and their attitudes about Christianity. You see that same, dis- dis- that same despising of Christ on display. I think it is nowhere more evident in the fact that one of the most common curse words that's used in the world today is the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is societal harm that comes. But in the first century, Peter's hearers were also facing economic harm. Allegiance to Christ trumped all other allegiances. And that meant that at times you would harm yourself from an economic and a business standpoint because what was being asked of you would go against your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, I think to some extent, 
we are able to deal with and understand the societal harm and we can sort of absorb that. But particularly here in America, in a country that is so rich, filthy rich, we cling to those riches so much so that if it was necessary for us to lose economic prosperity for the sake of Christ, would you be willing to do it? Don't be surprised when that level of persecution comes your way. That's what Peter's saying. You can't always count on the fact that your gifts to a church are going to be tax deductible. We can't always count on the fact that the church will not be taxed in America. And even if it were to be hostile towards us, that's what we should expect. And then finally, we know that some suffered immense physical violence and even death. There were believers who were thrown before cheering crowds as they were killed and torn apart by animals. So there is to be this rejection of sin. Now, why does he hit this when we think about what they were facing what is often the case is our desire is to respond in kind to the way we are treated. The grace and the gospel of Christ calls us to not respond in kind, but to respond to others as God has responded to us with grace. Now, Peter specifically points out some sins that are mentioned by name. Let none of you suffer as, and then he gives us three terms and then a fourth term that he sort of sets apart from the rest. We're not to suffer as a murderer, we're not to suffer as a thief, and we're not to suffer as an evildoer. Now, is Peter really saying that it was possible for the saints to be committing murder? Is, is that what he's bringing up here? And it's interesting, in the commentaries, there was the, almost this, this sense of like, well, he, he couldn't possibly be saying that. But I'd just like you to step back and think for a second. If people are trying to kill you, your response might be to try to kill them back in response. I think that it certainly was a possibility that murder or actions of sedition or rebellion were on the minds of the believers that Peter was writing to. In fact, one could even argue that preemptive acts of violence against someone who was going to persecute you was protecting and preserving the church. And Peter says, if you do that and you get caught and your desire was to protect the church, you're not suffering for righteousness sake. You've committed a sin and a crime. And so you'll suffer the consequences of that. But I think if we also think of the way that Jesus describes murder, murder is not just a matter of physically taking the life of someone. Where does murder begin? In the heart. With what? Hatred. Boy, it can be really easy to hate those who stand against Christ and stand against His church. It can be really easy to get together and to bash those who are railing against us as believers. And Peter says, don't. Don't let the underlying hatred in your heart grab a hold of you and lead you down a path that could lead to murder. Theft. The same goes for theft. Was, was this a problem among the early church? I, I would argue that it was. I think part of the reason we see that is that in other places in the New Testament, there are um, admonishments given to people who are not willing to work, neither should they eat, that they were robbing God and robbing the church. So if that, if that type of attitude was happening towards people robbing among God's people, was it also not a problem for them robbing people outside of the church? Yes. And again, you can justify this by thinking it's fair play. I'm not able to go and, and pray to Diana. I'm not able to pray to Artemis. 
And as a result of that, I can't go to the market. I can't sell whatever it is I'm selling. So I've got to survive. I've got to put food on the table for my family. So maybe I'll just find out where they take the money for the temple and grab some of that. I mean, they're the ones causing this problem. It can be very easy to justify and rationalize sinful behavior because of the way people are treating you. Now again, Peter's saying, if you get caught taking money from the temple to a foreign god and you're thrown in jail for it, you're punished for it, are you suffering for righteousness' sake? No. And then finally, he speaks of evil deeds. This does not just include criminal offenses, but all actions contrary to God's character and nature. Boy, how easy it is for us to act in a way contrary to how God would act when we are persecuted, when we are taunted, when we are suffering for His namesake. So murder, theft, evil deeds, these must be rejected. But fourthly, he adds another one, and he sets this off separate from the other three that he's mentioned. The ESV translates it as a, or as a meddler. And the way that we can see that it's set off is he adds that second as in there in this phrase. We're not to, to suffer as a meddler. Now, his use here and the term that's used in the underlying original Greek is striking because it's a word that perhaps Peter made up. <laughs> right? We find that Paul would do that a lot. He would make up words. But we don't find this word anywhere else in either the Greek translation of the Old Testament or in Greek literature any time before it shows up here in 1 Peter chapter 4. It means, literally, it's the combination of two words, and it means one who meddles in things alien to his calling. One who meddles in things alien to his calling. Now, that makes things about as clear as mud <laughs> when, when we think about what's being said here. Which means then that, like, I'm reading commentaries on this, and one guy says this, and one guy says that, and one guy says this. There's a whole lot of debate about what is being said here. I think, though, as I was reading through this, MacArthur was actually very helpful for me here. MacArthur says in his commentary that this is meddling in or inserting yourself into other people's private matters that do not concern you. In other words, letting people live their lives. The idea of likely has a specific political and societal connotation. In other words, Christians are not to be disruptors or rebels in this world. Now, we've talked about this before as we've looked at how Peter calls us to submit to authorities. Like, really? These authorities that are persecuting us? And Peter's like, yes. I I think of the, 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 the greatest example of this is the way that Jesus instructs his disciples. You know, they're they're ready to grab swords. They're ready to take up arms. They think that Christ is going to bring a political revolution that's going to change the landscape of Palestine. And Jesus comes and says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, the temptation that we face as believers is to want to make the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this earth. And that will only happen when Christ comes again. And then it will be indisputable. And we yearn for that day. But listen, neither you nor me nor any Christian figure or political person is Jesus Christ. He alone has the right to bring about that transformation. And so... Peter is pointing out the fact that believers have a tendency to want to meddle, to want to be disruptors. Now, this is particularly difficult in our American society. We have a republic. We live in a republic that's built on a democratic process. We saw that democratic process working its way out. 
this, this week, and it's still working its way out out west. Will they ever count all the votes? Now, we have a privilege of being able to legally redress our government, to be involved in the political process. And that is a gracious gift of God. It's, it's unique even today in world history. It's unique in the world today, and it certainly is unique throughout the vast history of the world that people have this type of power. We can vote. We can petition. We can speak out. But here's the thing, and this is where this meddling, I think, really hits home to us today. If our activism, whether it be for our political allegiances or for the cause of Christ, crosses into illegal actions, the consequences we face for those actions is not persecution. We are suffering not for righteousness' sake. MacArthur further comments that Peter may be calling out some disciples who in their zeal for the truth and resentment of paganism... Now, those are two good things, right? Should we be zealous for the truth? Absolutely. Should we hate paganism and the damnation that it brings? Yes. But what he says is there may have been those who had those two things. They were causing trouble in society for reasons beyond a sincere and legitimate concern for the gospel. It is very easy to let a legitimate and sincere concern for zeal for Christ cross over into meddling in a way that is destructive to the cause of Christ. We are not to be troublemakers. You know, I have... Thankfully, it's a rare thing that I've seen, but I have heard people, Christians, complain about the government's prosecution of sexual offenses within churches. Now, here in western Pennsylvania, and particularly in Pennsylvania in general, that tends to focus on the Roman Catholic Church. But you go south, and the name of the church that often has those problems with sexual abuse and difficulties has the name Baptist in it. And there have been people who have said that the government is unfairly targeting pastors that are involved in these things. Listen, if a pastor is caught red-handed, he's either sexually abused somebody or he's... I saw just a headline the other day of a pastor in Texas of a Baptist church had thousands of images of child pornography on it. Is he suffering for righteousness sake? No. And so we've got to be very clear that we are not troublemakers. We are not disruptors in this society. We seek to, as much as is possible with us, live peaceably with all people. And our suffering then becomes very clear that we suffer not for our temperaments, not for our sinful actions, but we are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador has no authority beyond the authority given to him by the one whom he represents. We have no authority to rise up until we see King Jesus coming in the clouds. And then He will raise us up and we will rule and reign with Him. Would that that be today? So we are to reject sin. But secondly, we see that there's purity that's brought about here for the glory of God. Look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Instead, let him what? Glorify God in that name, the name of Christian. Why do believers suffer? We suffer because we are Christians. Now, it's interesting. That's a term that we use all the time, right? We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. We're Christians. That's a term that's well-known and used all the time. You know how many times it's used in the New Testament? 
twice. Once here and then once in the book of Acts. When Agrippa states to Paul that you, in, if he continues arguing with him or say, sharing the gospel, he would convince him to be a Christian. Those are the only two places that that term is used. It literally means someone who is associated with Christ. It is the best descriptor of someone who is united to Christ by faith. Now, remember, we've seen, we saw this a couple weeks ago. When believers face persecution, who also is facing persecution? Christ is. Remember Paul on the road to Damascus? You know, the light comes. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? So the reason for the world's vitriol against us must be our union to Christ. It must be evident that they hate us, not because they hate our personalities or they hate the way that we go about things, but they hate us because they hate Christ. That must be evident. Now, when we suffer in that way, when all manner of evil is spoken against us falsely, our first response is to be ashamed by that. But notice what Peter says. If you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. There's a great paradox in this that's illustrated in Acts chapter 5. It's interesting, Acts chapter 5, the apostles are taken aside by the, uh, by the council of the Jews and, and they're, they're told to stop speaking in, in Christ's name. And so they send them away and what's the first thing they do? They start speaking in Christ's name. Praise the Lord. And so they're, they're brought back again. They're beaten and, and, and they're imprisoned. And they said, did we not charge you strongly to not speak anymore in his name? And they said, look, you are not the highest authority God is. We will obey God rather than men when it affects our ability to share Christ with others. And so they take him, and what do they do? They beat him again. And then they let him go. And notice what their response is. So this is a public, this is a public thing that happens in front of hundreds or maybe thousands of people, all right? You know, this would be, if, if this were happening today, there would be a, 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 uh, a newscast story about so-and-so has been arrested for such-and-such. And I mean, it would be all over the place. And so imagine what it's like for you to go into Shop and Save or Giant Eagle the next day after this has been said about you. You've been publicly humiliated. And you would rightly think to yourself from a human perspective, Man, I'm ashamed of this. But notice what they did in Acts chapter 5. They left the presence of the council not shamed, but what? Rejoicing. Rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name of Christ. And then every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They pushed harder in sharing the gospel. They weren't concerned with their own reputation. They were concerned with Christ's. That is the very essence of he must increase, but I must decrease. We are all about reputations today. Social media has exploded that concept in the worst way so that we feel good about ourselves by the likes and the shares that we get and the and the and the 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 Instagram whatever you do on Instagram stuff is or the TikTok views or whatever it is man i never thought i'd sound like an old person but now i sound like an old person we not whose reputation matters the most Christ's. Does your reputation matter? No. Only Christ's reputation matters. So if we suffer for the, as a Christian, we are not to be ashamed, but rather we are to glorify God in that name. And how does that happen? Well, I think of what Jesus says. In John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. And 
He's been blind from birth. And in that culture, that was a shameful thing. Someone who was blind could not, pr- could, could not provide for themselves. They were completely dependent on begging as a way of life. And so they passed by and they saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, who sinned? Right? What act that, that distorted the glory of God was the cause of this man being born blind? Was it his parents or him? So a level of suffering. And notice what Jesus' response was. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but he suffers as a blind man for what purpose? That the works of God might be displayed in him. That God would be glorified through him. And Jesus even speaks of this as he is praying before the Father, about to head to the cross, about to face the greatest act of persecution and suffering inflicted on any person. What is his prime? What are the first words out of his mouth when he prays? When he'd spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may what? Glorify you. So purity is found in rejecting sin. Purity is found for the glory of God. And then finally, purity comes through refining. Peter says some things here that I think we don't like to think about a lot as Christians. Because as the writer of Hebrews tells us, discipline is not enjoyable when it comes. But God uses our suffering, He uses our persecutions that we face for the sake of refining us. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. You know, while there are the potential of legal consequences to our sinful and illegal actions, while they exist, listen, there is no human judge that is to be feared more than the eternal judge, our Father. He will determine whether or not we conducted ourselves with righteousness and sought His glory above all things. Now listen, when is the time for this judgment to begin? He gives us a time indication. For it is time now for judgment to begin. So how is that happening? Through persecution. God uses persecution to chisel away and to refine His people. The end of all things is at hand. And so, again, we saw that in verse 7. So what? Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. You see the connection between what Peter has already said and what he's saying here again. Listen, things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. 2 Timothy 3, 12-13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Promise. Again, Should we be surprised? No. And that persecution is going to happen while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Now that, you know, that's that's not like one of your favorite, you know, oh, get up in the morning and, oh, the world's getting getting worse all the time. But it does allow us to recognize that when someone mocks you for the sake of Christ, when a friend turns away from you because you stand for truth, when you don't back down on the fact that what the Bible calls sin is sin, despite the pressures of society to change, when all that happens, there is a joy that can come into your life to say, God is using this to make me more like His Son. No suffering that we face is useless. God uses it to refine us. Now, this term judgment, it might startle us. 
And we have to recognize that Peter cannot be here referring to eternal judgment. Romans 8, chapter 1 tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it cannot be referring to eternal judgment. If we are in Christ, our hope is settled in Him. He is the eternal Son of God. God cannot reject Himself. We are saved eternally, and that's Paul's conclusion. No condemnation. Hallelujah. We have that hope in Christ. So what Peter is more likely referring to here is to what, he, what, he, what Malachi describes in Malachi chapter 3. And your homework for this afternoon, read Malachi chapter 3. What is described there is God comes to His temple suddenly. And He comes for the sake of refining His priests so that they can offer righteous offerings. That is what we find here. God refines us. Now, He refines us through fire. He refines us through things that are difficult. In fact, in chapter 1, verses um, 6 through 7, Peter already points this out. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more, pressure than gold that per- more, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter's already focused and told us about this idea of refining. God tests His people to chip away the sinful attitudes in us and to conform us more into the image of Christ. Now here, here's where this really, I think, is helpful. Peter tells us that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Our goal in the Christian life is to be like who? Like Christ. If Christ suffered, then what should we expect? We've already said, suffering. And so in that way, we are made like our Savior. I mean, it is, it is a testimony to the grace of God that when you are reviled, when someone harms you, when someone says something evil against you falsely, and you don't respond in kind, praise God, that's His grace at work. And He does that over and over and over again. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter sort of, focuses on the end of all things. And he says, since the world is going to melt with fervent heat, since all these things are going to be dissolved, what should be the consequence for us? What sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? As we consider the judgment of God that begins at His household, we need to recognize that while it is Grievous, while it is difficult, it is used by God to change us to be more like His Son. Which brings us, finally, to the goal of the pilgrim suffering. Now, I'll be honest, I wasn't planning on preaching this this, this morning. I thought I was just going to finish there, but I don't have enough for a whole sermon next time. So, we're going to move quickly, I promise. You were thinking, oh, he's going to be done early. Um, the goal of the pilgrim's suffering. Look at verse 18 and 19. Or actually verse 17, the, the, the last phrase of verse 17. It says, if it begins with us, so if judgment begins with us, us who are sure in Christ that we will not be condemned, he asks us this question, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely, or more accurately, if the righteous are with difficulty saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? See, there are two things here that we see that the goal of the pilgrim suffering is. The first is gospel advance. 
Again, we who are tested by, by fire for the sake of Christ, we will be saved. 1 Corinthians 3.15 speaks of that. Job reminds us that though we are tried with fire, we will come forth as what? Gold. So the trials, the judgment of God on His people, He will always see Christ's righteousness and we will always be saved. But what about those who reject and do not obey the gospel of God? Their judgment is not one that brings them to come forth as gold. Their judgment is eternal, everlasting, never-ending, and the only thing they know of God is His wrath. I mean, Peter's already talked about this. He talked about Noah. And at the time of Noah, people did not obey the herald of righteousness that Noah was. And what happened to them? They were consumed by God's wrath. So what, what does this mean then to, to reject or to not obey the gospel? Well, it means that they don't repent. God has commanded all men everywhere to what? Repent. And it means that they have not turned to Christ. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. That is what it is to disobey the gospel, to reject repentance and to reject Christ. And if you do those two things, the sun will come upon you and dash you into pieces like a potter's vessel. That is the promise to those who reject God Christ. Peter then quotes 11, 30, Proverbs 11.31, speaking of the righteous being scarcely saved or saved with difficulties. Now, here's the thing. What are those difficulties that the righteous face? It's the persecution. The Christian life is simple, but it's not easy. And there's difficulty that comes through our lives. And what Peter is saying by quoting, the, by quoting Solomon here in Proverbs is that those difficulties we face are used to make us and conform us more into Christ. It's part of our sanctification. So when we encounter suffering, we have confidence in Christ. That's why he says if you're, if you're persecuted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because you have Christ. But what of those who don't have Christ? They have no hope as they suffer. There's no one they can turn to from their destructive habits if they reject Christ. They will ultimately face the full brunt of God's wrath. So why does Peter bring this up here? Why does he point us and say, what of those who are not of the household of faith? Well, I think this is how we can respond with grace to them because we first of all should have compassion on them. Now, this is hard when someone is mocking you. When someone is ugly and hateful towards you, it is hard to have compassion on them. But if we step back and we realize God is using this to make me more like Christ, but for them, they're just acting with no hope in this world. Our hearts can be changed by that focus and God's grace at work to love those who hate us. Isn't that what Jesus tells us to do? Love those who persecute you. How can we do that? We recognize that they are without hope in this world. And then we look at the persecution as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Someone's hating on you, someone's persecuting you, someone's mocking you. Be like the disciples and witness to them even harder. Share the gospel even more 
to them. This is what Paul did. It, it, it is remarkable to me throughout the scriptures in the New Testament when Paul would speak about how he was glad he was suffering. Why? Because the gospel was advancing. I mean, he was even glad that someone was disparaging his own name for the sake of preaching the gospel. Because if it was preached out of pretense, Paul said he was just glad that the gospel was being preached. It wasn't about him. He didn't care that whatever, whoever's ministry didn't like the Apostle Paul. As long as they preached Christ, that's all that mattered. And this brought Paul to the point where he was able to stand before Caesar and share the gospel. He would not have had that opportunity if he had not been arrested and beaten and dragged into jail and dragged before judges. It was an opportunity for him to share the hope of Christ with those who are hopeless. And so our suffering gives us an opportunity for gospel advance. But then that looks outward. Finally, there's one thing that it does, and it brings about greater dependence. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. This is exactly what Jesus set for us as an example. Peter mentions it in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But instead of of reviling and threatening, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He handed over his life into the Father's hands. And that's what we must do as we suffer. Suffering is an opportunity. Persecution is an opportunity for us to depend upon God even more. To grow in our faith as He works within us. And this is something that we continue through the entirety of our lives. And the greatest example of this is when Jesus was on the cross. When He was suffering for your sins and my sins. When that was over what did he say he called out with a loud voice and he says father into your hands i commit my spirit jesus lived a life that showed that and it's what we're called to do even to the same point where we will stand before physical death in this life and we commit ourselves to the Father who will bear us before Him in Christ. This is the great hope we have for suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth we find in it. Father, take it and apply it to our hearts and lives. Thank you that no suffering is meaningless. Thank you, Father, that we have great hope in this. We pray this in Christ's name.